with me to discuss is Professor Lena Khatib. She is the director of the SOAS Middle East Institute. Um, I hadn't seen Jeremy's report. We watched it together. I'm struck by how many of the victims in these reports are pacifists who've worked with Palestinians, have picked Palestinians up from the area's crossing. They are the people in the South most at risk from Gaza, but in a way they are in the same way closer to the Palestinians. Would that be right? Well, we have to remember that in this conflict, not everyone is an extremist, not everyone believes in violence, and there are pacifists on both sides. When you're talking about pacifists who are Israeli, who live near Gaza, these are the people who are also observing the suffering of the Palestinians in Gaza. And this perhaps makes them more likely to want to help because of, you know, observing the suffering of fellow human beings. Rather than those who are in Tel Aviv or West Bank, who, uh, sorry, or in Jerusalem, who are more detached from it. Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, a generalization. However, in general, communities that are isolated from others uh, don't really uh, know what it's like to be on the other side. And mm. so when you have communities that are completely detached from what life is like for these Palestinians, then perhaps they don't even imagine the scale mm. of the suffering. It's, it's, I, I, I don't know how the parents deal with what they're hearing and, and, and what they're seeing. Um, why do you think, it must have been a deliberate strategy. If, if Hamas had come in and shot the men and shot the soldiers, that would be one thing. But shooting children, burning children, slitting the throats of children, that, that is a deliberate strategy. Why? Why have they gone that far? I mean, the attack by Hamas is unprecedented in terms of scope, in terms of scale, in terms of ambition. Hamas wants this to be a message to Israel that this is an existential battle now. And for that reason, they are attacking everybody. They regard everybody as a legitimate target to instill fear in the Israeli population because they know that the Israeli state exists to protect the Jewish people and the Israeli citizens. And so in attacking the civilians, Hamas is basically trying to say this idea of the Israeli state is not viable. Mm. So they are sending a uh, psychological message to the rest of the uh, Israeli population, which is, uh, you know, another tool of warfare. This is psychological warfare as well as a military attack causing actual physical casualties. What about the message to their own people? in Gaza. That too. I mean, Hamas wants to be seen as heroic and it's no accident that the But there attack... are lots of Palestinians who won't see this as heroic. They no, of this... course not. But I mean, we've seen in the um, reports uh, people being very desperate. I mean, we have to look at the circumstances of people in Gaza. They are so desperate that for a lot of them, they feel they have no other alternative. And they think either way we're dead. And so we might as well get behind this kind of loss battle because what have we got to lose? Um, it's really unfortunate. I mean, not everyone necessarily believes in Hamas's methods or Hamas is a political entity or a military entity, but for a lot of people, they are so desperate that they're just getting behind Hamas mm. for lack of other options. Just on the wider region, because we're going to talk about that a lot this evening, um, this is putting enormous pressure, and it certainly will when the pictures come out of Gaza in the, in the weeks ahead. It's putting enormous pressure on Arab governments. 
yeah. and the Egyptian government. Absolutely. I mean, for Saudi Arabia that had just until Saturday thought that its plan to go ahead with a deal with Israel, the United States, uh, was kind of, you know, making progress. Uh, of course, it was talking to the Palestinian Authority about this deal to try to find some sort of solution to this conflict. Now that is stalled. And same for Egypt. Uh, President Sisi of Egypt is facing an election soon, and now he has a very complicated uh, problem on his hands. Professor Khatib, good to see you. Thank you for coming in this evening. Um, lots to discuss, and we'll get into some more of that uh, through the course of the programme. Around the world and across the UK, you're watching BBC News. Uh, let's take a quick look at some of the other stories making news today. The waiting list for planned NHS England treatment has risen again to a new record high. More than 7.7 .7 million people were waiting to start routine treatment at the end of August. It's highest number since records began. Routine treatment ranges from hip replacements to surgery to remove cancerous tumours. The former Formula One boss Bernie Eccleston has been given a suspended prison sentence for fraud. The 92-year-old billionaire pleaded guilty at Southwark Crown Court. He admitted failing to declare more than £400 million held in a trust in Singapore to the UK government in July 2015. He received a sentence of 17 months suspended for two years. The UK economy grew by 0.2% in August, according to the latest figures. The Office for National Statistics says there was strong growth in services, which was partially offset by falls in manufacturing and construction. In contrast, some sectors fared poorly, such as arts, entertainment and recreation. You're live with BBC News. Now, there are around 150 people thought to have been taken hostage by Hamas. Last night, we received a bit more information from the Israeli Defence Force on where they're being held. They believe they've been dispersed among tunnels under Gaza in locations that were not known to be used by Hamas prior to this conflict. But remember, this is not just an Israeli hostage crisis. There were 23 nationalities among those killed on Saturday. Uh, the US said tonight that 27 Americans were killed, 14 are still unaccounted for. It's believed some of them will be among the hostages. There's 18 French citizens that are missing, including several children. Uh, the French Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne said they are sure that some of those were abducted by Hamas. 17 British nationals killed or abducted. We don't have a breakdown yet on the numbers that have been taken. So how do you get them out alive? That is the task of the negotiating teams. With me, uh, a man who is an expert, Scott Walker. He's a former hostage negotiator, having resolved more than 300 cases in his career. Thank you for coming in. Mm -hmm. It's good to see you. Um, what's the arc of a hostage crisis like this? Well, as you can imagine, in the early hours and days, there's lots of high emotion, uncertainty and confusion. So one of the early stages is to try and build an information intelligence picture, try and find out what is going on, who actually has the hostages, and try and engage in some kind of dialogue with them. It's different, though, when you're dealing with an organisation mm. rather than a state or a government, and the demands of Hamas are so much different to what other groups would be looking for, correct? Well, this is the challenge in this particular case because the negotiations, when they take place, are actually occurring in a war zone. There's an extra dimension to it as well, and there are so many of them spread out across Gaza as well, as you mentioned earlier, in tunnels and, and, and basements and what have you. It seems to me that the strategy has to be keeping in the mind of the hostage takers the value of the people they're mm. holding. How do you do that? 
Absolutely, it's about humanising them. And it's just to kind of reiterate right at the beginning when we talk about negotiation, we're not talking about agreeing or condoning or acquiescing to the hostage takers. It's actually just opening up some kind of dialogue to enable the safe and timely release. So in the case of Hamas, that would be we could talk about prisoners but what? You have to give us some proof of life. You have to give us some proof that they're being well cared for. Uh, absolutely. Proof of life is one of the fundamental aspects of all hostage negotiation. Uh, and it's normally done in the very early stages. What about the, the complexity of this? Because as I've just described, I mean, I, I don't know how many hostages are in there of different nationalities, but we've pulled out four. The French, the Brits, mm. the Americans, of course, the Israelis. Who takes the lead? Because what you don't want to do is overcomplicate a situation like this. Well, my understanding is there is a coordination cell and situation room set up and that will bring together the Americans through the FBI and the Brits and other nationalities who have hostages taken out there as well to kind of coordinate the response to try and identify and locate where the hostages are being held and actually what are the options are, including there will be options for hostage rescue perhaps as part of the, the incursion that is inevitable but that obviously only increases the risk to the hostages. We're going to have to brace ourselves mm. for the inevitable film that will come out. We hope against hope that it's, it's not somebody paraded who is already dead, but, but does that, as, as a negotiator, does that affect the give and take that tends to develop in a situation like this? Well, it's important to remain optimistic in these, and actually, as I mentioned just now, it is about trying to humanise the lives and the people, the hostages that they've got, to actually minimise the chances as much as possible of them coming to harm. And actually, if they want some kind of prisoner exchange, they need to take care. It's their responsibility for the welfare of the hostages whilst they're in their captivity. Are you hopeful? Yeah, absolutely. I think normally there's a high chance of success in hostage negotiations generally. And I think if this is handled well, I'm hopeful for, for Lauren to come back. Scott, it's good to see you. Thank, Thank you. you for coming in.